Okay. Excitement of uh, all the uh, public lectures are over until Wednesday. Uh, I have to be I have to be humble. I have to I have to tell you that I got calls from you. Many of the yeshiva, the, they called and thanked me. The Rashi yeshiva. So I, evidently the boys understood me. Rabbi Friedman gave me hell. He thought I spoke over their heads. He said you should have given like you did five years ago about the Rub's life. These fellas don't know. You know you were talking to the kollel. So. Uh, I was worried maybe the king teacher, saint teacher was over their heads, but the reaction I got, unless they're pulling my leg, it was, you know, I, I can't believe it's over their heads, but, uh, you know, then again, I'm coming from one area, they're coming from another. Yeah, the girls, the girls, I spoke on uh, image memory and, and, and uh, event memory, and that was very powerful. There I saw with my own eyes, I mean, I saw it was, but the effort that those two kshirim took off me physically, I was a... Uh, Skeleton on Wednesday and Thursday, but now Baruch Hashem, we're back. Okay, now, uh, excuse me, Baruch Hashem, and also I want to thank. Uh, also, I had a very hush of a guest on Shabbos, uh, Rav Heshel Shechter and his wife. So Hirsch Cooper knows that uh, that uh, gave us a lot of uh, energy. You know how far back we go. Uh, my wife goes back with him 50 years, so uh, I go back with him 40 plus years. Yeah, grew up in Marshallu in, in that area, of course, of course. Uh, Reb Heschel the Elder, the man who lived So my grandchildren came Shabbos, and they were so disappointed because it was it was culture and conflict. These kids know every tank, every gun, every plane. Uh, their father's a skanaluf, and he's telling them, "I want you. Don't you want to know Gemara like your grandfather?" He doesn't know these kids know Gemara, no Mishnah, never miss a minion. But they know it, and he and the kids brought my grandson brought his models of World War II equipment, and he started to say, Rabbi Shechter, were you in this half track? And the poor guy says, all I had was a jeep. He didn't know, not from planes, not from tanks, not from jeeps. You understand? He knew a jeep, that's all. And my, my grandsons, you know, figured this was a captain from World War II. So I had to explain that a chaplain is not... Uh, Rabbi Shechter didn't know this. In the Israeli army, a Rav Tzvay is not a chaplain. We carried weapons. We're not part of the international guard. We are a fighting part of the Israeli army. That's the way the Israeli army is structured. The Rabbanim Tzvayim are a fighting part of the army. We carry weapons. If we're captured, we can be tortured like any other soldier. Never forget, in basic training, the guy asked the commander, what do we do when we're captured? And we, if we don't know Hebrew that well, it was a Russian guy. So the commander says to him, by the time you'll be captured, you'll know Hebrew. You know, the whole place broken to left. You've got to understand what the site was like. But uh, my grandchildren were disappointed because they're on one level, he's on another. But then he told the stories of Buchenwald and, and, and he told, you know, about your father-in-law. I tell you, it was hard not to cry on Shabbos. It was overwhelming. Okay, now, the Binyan Svi, as I said, you see the people that went through the Holocaust, uh, what they suffered, it's indescribable. What he proposed, the uh, blanket heta, and yet you see the Satma Rebbe. And I have to tell you, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, because I say Satma Rebbe, I don't think I'm being critical. Someone t- there was a fellow in the Kola last year, as you know, the last few years, for many years in the Kola, the Kola was always very right-wing. And they had a hard time with the, with, with the Rebbeim here. You know, it took a while for them to adjust to us, but they forgave us. They always dismissed us as relics from the 50s. They knew we know a little bit, and we're from, so they... They forgave us. But the last few years, the county reaction I've spoken about has affected the Kolal as well. And for the first time last year, I was really surprised. There were guys in the Kolal who were, 
who are already on the borderline with conservative Judaism. So there was one guy in the call, it's two years ago already, could be not last year, two years ago, nice fellow. So uh, he went, and this guy uh, was the only student who ever got so angry that he walked out of class in anger. The only time it ever happened in all my years of teaching, I said something on the Israeli scene, and a guy walked out, all right, he apologized, other guys said, oh, well, mad at me, why I don't get angry at him? Some of the fellows came to me, Rebbe, why don't you... The last time I got angry was 1972, and I hope the next time I'll be angry when a Kaddish Baruch Hu takes me, and um, I'm upstairs, I'll be angry why he took me away from teaching Torah. That's the next time I plan to be angry. So um, I, uh, I welcomed him back. You know, he apologized, you don't have to apologize, but next time, give a Rebbe a chance, be done. He got mad because I said they're not Jews, it was my famous talk. I'm going to do it again Wednesday morning that we have inverted Muranos here. He heard not the, the, that that uh, that uh, Barak, Aaron Barak, and David Barak are not Jews. He didn't let me finish the sentence. He got up and walked out, you know, a da, walked out in anger. So um, then he came to me and he had met with Rabbi Wurtzberger. And he says to me, you know, uh, Rabbi, you're right. Rabbi Wurtzberger told me, and you know who I'm talking about, right? You have to understand the people I'm mentioning to appreciate what I'm about to say. He goes to his, his, his guru, the Rabbi Walter was a Talmud of the Rav from the early 40s, but he's left. He never, he never went in, he was never affected by the swing to the right, and he remained a lonely figure. You understand? And as a matter of fact, I'll tell you something none of you know. Rabbi Wurzberger never published his doctorate. Because the Rav told him, don't publish it, the world will, the world will think you're not from you know, I never saw the doctor, but I give a man credit who could have easily published it and didn't publish it because the Rav told him not to publish. So he came back from Rabbi Wurzberger and he tells me, uh, you know, Rabbi Wurzberger said the Rav had a phobia about any innovation in halacha. And I told Yair, I said, this word phobia is a fabulous word. I said, kolakavod. That's exactly the rub. And I want to tell you something. When you have a healthy attitude towards the halacha, you're going to have a phobia too. And this is the Satmar Rebbe. And this is why, with all the lumbers in the world, I don't want to be a wise aleck. You understand what I'm saying? you got to know, I'm not criticizing. Satmar Rebbe was worried. You're coming in with a chiddush out of left field with a blanket, mayor abanim and every based in. And you know, in our day and age... The minute you show you can play games with the halach, even if it's halachically justified, the world today jumps onto it and you're in trouble. And I understand the Safna Rebbe. And you notice Rav Maishlis back down. And the wind-up was with men, they, each one got an individual head. Obviously with men it's much easier to give a head. And as I tell you, even if the first wife comes back, the worst is you're stuck with two wives. It's a sociological, emotional problem. I'm not, I'm not uh, demeaning it. I mean, a normal man is in love. I, I come from a world where you, you love a woman. So if you love a woman and you love Leia and she thinks she died and you marry Rachel and you love her, so if, if Leia comes back, I admit it's an emotional problem. And I don't think in this day and age two women can live under one roof. Maybe it can happen. They tell me in Lakewood there's a guy that has a wife and a Pilegish, two different apartments, and they live happily ever after. In Lakewood, I'm told, Mamish, there's Mamish living uh, Ramban Shita Pilegish. Mamish living. With the door it says Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Mr. and Pilegish, or Rabbi and Mrs. Rabbi and Pilegish, the same guy, two apartments, etc. Beautiful. That's the problem. So I don't want to say it's like a woman. A woman's the problem. I'm saying it here. It's not. Okay. Then I have to tell you what I said last week. I was sorry. I don't want to say anything public. It's uh, 
I just finished Masechet Yavamat. Masechet Yavamat is a difficult Masechet. You know, Ani, there are three difficult Masechet. They're Riven, Yavamat, and Nida. What makes them difficult is that in, in, in a Riven and Nida, you need a lot of mathematics. There's a lot of concepts involved that a normal dummy like myself doesn't know. You've got to know mathematics and, and the biological factors. Yavamat is simply difficult because of the configuration of the charts. And I have to tell you, if you're familiar with the... With, with, with the, with the, the uh, uh, it was um, uh, Rav Kalish's son, Rav Tzvi, uh, uh, the famous Rav Kalish, the great uh, Mizrahi leader, his son did a volume on uh, Yavamut with illustrations. It's the classic volume. Steinsaltz is much better. As far as the illustrations go, Steinsaltz is much easier to understand. But Steinsaltz is not as complete. So I wound up between both volumes of Chavashtan and Epis. You know I'm talking about the concept. When five brothers marry five sisters... Go and hold that in your mind. Five brothers married to five sisters and one by one they die. What happens to the women that they die, you understand that it's, it's unbelievable. You have to hold in your mind concepts. So these are three difficult mesechta. But at the end, I was chuckling uh, last week because I was doing the very Gemara I did in class. In other words, my own learning caught up with what I was doing in class. And Enoch the sugi of Kuf Chalaf Aleph, Kuf Chaf Aleph, Omer Aleph, the sugi of Tzurva the Rabbonon. It's known by the code word Tzurva the Rabbonon. It's, it's, it's a very famous sugya. And what the sugya implies is that all men perhaps are not equal. And there may be truth to it. Joe DiMaggio died uh, and Yehudi uh, Menuchen died uh, approximately a few days apart. Uh, the great violinist, right? He's a violinist. No, to be honest with you, a lot more people knew about Joe DiMaggio's death than the Menuchen's death. All right. Two people died, two accomplished people. But there's no question for every person that heard of Menuchin, 50 people heard of Joe DiMaggio. So there is truth to it. Uh, it's not that they're inherently, one is better than the other, chas v'chalila. But it simply means, by the nature of the game, some people are more well-known. Lahavdil, uh, the Gemara says about Tzuvah uh, de which means that Talmud Chacham. Talmud Chacham are well-known. It's, it's absolutely so. Talmud Chacham, a public teacher, a speaker, public figure, more well-known. So the Gemara, this is Ravashi's famous shita, that when a Talmud Chacham survives, everyone would know about it. If he doesn't survive, it's mamish right at the end of Yavamat. Uh, if a Talmud Chacham survives, everyone will know about it. If he's not a Talmud Chacham, he can get lost in the crowd and you may or may not know. But a Talmud Chacham, call it Islay. And that's why with Mayim, with, uh, according to this opinion, but Mayim Shainlech himself, if it's a Talmud Chacham, we could be Matir, because if he survived, the world will know about it. Afterwards, the Gemara says in the Maskana, no, it's not really that way. Lachatrilawa not Matir. And that's the way the Gemara winds up, that there's basically no difference, but if someone remarried, certainly if a Talmud Chacham remarried, certainly if the, if the widow of a Talmud Chacham remarried, Bidiyavad, it's okay. That's the way the Gemara winds up. And that Gemara becomes crucial, Lizman uh, Hazan, this is where we ended off the class last week, because um, as the Achronim say, Bizman Hazer, perhaps everyone is a Talmud Chacham. In the sense that there's immediate communication. And this is what we refer to by the telegraph, the telegram, uh, today it would be the telephone, uh, email, 
the website, call it what you wish. There is instant communication. And therefore, it could be that we all have a halacha of a Talmud Chacham. And this means already, you see, once there's a that Bidiyeved, it's okay. So you see what it means is, it's only a phobia, why Tehillah we don't allow it. You understand? It's, it's, if I can use that word, you, you have to understand something. When you say Bidiyeved, okay, it, it, like I once heard the Rav say, if we paskin that um, the Ramah's famous psak that appears on all egg matzahs, that egg is a mutter for choylem and skenim and young children. So what, is the psa- what does that mean? It means that the Ramah is paskening that it's mutter. But because there's such a machlokes we shine in Rashi and in the Balei Tosfat, so you don't want to paskin it black and white, so you say, all right, where, where you're old and young and you're in need and you're sick and you can't swallow regular matzah, there you can be mekel. But once we say we can be mekel, it means that Basically, the Ramah holds its motto. This is the concept of Tzuru the Rabban, and it becomes a very, very important concept. Now, Reb Moshe here, and, and this is where we left off last week, Reb Moshe, and I, again, you know who Reb Moshe was, I don't have to tell you. Reb Moshe was the uh, tail talpiot. I mean, Reb Moshe's uh, the life story, I mean, here's a man comes to America, he came, I believe it was 1937, the year I was born. He came, no one knew who he was. You know, he was from a, a, a nice family. His father was Uzdarav. His uncle was, uh, was the, was the Rav's uh, grandfather. So, you know, uh, the Rebellion Prujana, the Prujana Rav. So he came from Hashim Rabbanim. He himself was a Rav. But uh, he himself was a, Rav Moshe himself was a, was a well-known Rav. And he was a Rav under the communist. Rav Moshe came, you, you have to understand, he came with two sons, two daughters, his sons barely could go beyond explaining Chumash. That's, that's how little they knew when they came to America. It came from the... I have no idea what it was, communism. And Rav Moshe goes into Mesifta Teferet Yudushalayim. But you see, Rav Moshe as the posek became much greater than Rav Moshe as the Rosh Hashiva. It's interesting. With all that he taught and all the Talmudim he had, and he had Talmudim and he published later Sfarim, you know, the Dibrat Moshe and the and Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, Baba, maybe Baba Batra, other, other Masechtat. But the Posek of Rav Moshe rose to the top and he became literally the focal Posek in the United States. Now, in Ebenezer, the first time he did Ebenezer, which would make it volume three out of the, what is it, uh, seven, eight, uh, what do we have, eight volumes today? Seven volumes, I, I, I forget myself already. Of course, the last few volumes are not that important. It's not really the last volume, it's certainly not really Rep. Moshe. It's, it's hard to tell who's doing it, his son-in-law, his grandson. But, uh, but the, original, uh, six, uh, the original seven volumes are very important, very crucially important. There are eight volumes. The first five volumes are certainly, certainly very important. Six and seven already, Rabbi Moshe was older, he was being assisted. So you, it, you can be less summer on the sixth and seventh than the first five. But uh, the Ebenezer first time around was classic. And I'm quoting from Siman Mem Aleph. And this trivia was written in 1948. And, and I cry because Rabbi Moshe did not write the name. Had he only written the name, see, historically, this is our tragedy. Gedole Yisrael had no feeling for the historical importance. They dealt with the halachic issue. And they didn't realize what it would mean to people involved in the historic point of view to know the names. And there's no way we'll ever know the name. And Rabbi Moshe says, 
it, it, in relation to the wife of a great Talmud Chacham, Talmud Chacham of Fursam, and, and he came searching for his wife and children. Well, it doesn't write where he returned. What evidently happened, I can guess, is you go, a place like Vilna went back and forth. First it was part of Poland, then the Russians took over, Evidently, when the Russians took over, he went. Remember, Jews were running away from Poland. Poland fell first. You read right, I don't have to tell you. Remember, 1939, September, Hitler conquered Poland in one month. One month, Poland fell. So the Jews ran like crazy to Vilna, which was at the end of Poland, Lithuania. It had been given to Poland when they, when they emasculated Lithuania in the Treaty of Versailles after World War I and established independent Lithuania, but a much smaller one. And now the Russians took over Vilna and that whole area. So this Talmud Chacham, evidently his family ran ahead of him. He ran after them to catch up. And when he went to look for them, his wife and children were no longer there. They already were taken away by the Russians. And... And uh, he remained there, and it was impossible for him to leave. And according to the news that was reached afterwards, he couldn't get any transport out of there. The Nazis soon came in and conquered this area from the Poles, and they killed every Jew they could get their hands on. Now that's all we know about him, that he went back to the area of Lithuania under the Russians, looked to his wife and children, he was stuck there, the Nazis came in, you can probably date it, this has to be 41, the latter part of 41, and everyone uh, was killed. And there was no other way, says it was at that point there was no other transport, no other, no other way to get out. I'll tell you who might have known the name, and you see, like everything else in life, I was too stupid, I never asked her. Rebetzin Hutten, Zichron Levach. Remember I spoke about Batsheva Salavetchuk Hutten, who died a few weeks, a few months ago now. She, she might have known who this was, because she ran away via Moscow uh, to Japan and gets to the United States. Namish at this period. She might have known who this is t- talking about. Now, no one has ever heard from this person. No one has ever heard from him again. It's now three years after the war. It's 1948. Now, what's the Where did I say his wife and the children uh, uh, wound up? The, the Russians took them away. Maybe the Russians took him away. This takes us back to the Satmi Rebbe's Chashash. Maybe they're in Siberia. His wife and children got out. They got to America. This is what I told you. After World War II, there was a certain period where with miracles Jews could get out. If they could show they were Polish citizens and they really weren't Russians, there was a certain point where Stalin let them out, let them go back to Poland. From Poland they fell into the hands of the conquering armies and they could go into the DP camps and move out. There was a certain amount of movement. Not a lot, but certainly a woman with children, the Russians, the communists didn't need them. They needed able-bodied workers, let them out. 
There's a certain Rachmanut that Stalin still displayed before he became totally paranoid, which takes us into the early 50s or the late 40s, where he goes crazy and starts uh, executing Jews for fear that they're, they're, there's a doctor's plot. And, and It's unbelievable what Stalin does when he's paranoid. But at this point, he lets them out. So his wife gets to America. And er, most, and Rep. Moshe writes, most of the people in Russia got out at that point. His wife and his children came to America. And and he says, this is so interesting. I'm quoting Reb Moshe. All the Talmud HaChamim and all the Bnei Yeshivat knew who this man was. See, this is where Halavai we would know the name. This was a Rebaran Lichtenstein. This was a... Uh, of Shach, first rate Talmud Chacham, a Gom, Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Shach. Again, you don't know that today because Rav Shach is not functioning, but certainly 10, 20 years ago, there wasn't a more famous Rosh Yeshiva than Rebbe Lezer Menachem Shach. Giant of Torah. I mean, everyone knows. Everyone knows this man's whereabouts. It's... You can't, you can't escape your public, if I can put it that way. A guy came to me before from the Kolel. He was upset. He didn't see me Shabbos. He knows where I daven. He said, what do you want out of me? If I, I daven at the Kolel Friday night. You're not there. I daven all Rivka, first minion. You're not there. I daven Mincha. I happen to daven. That was the one minion that no one can tell where I'm davening Shabbos. So I daven 505 at all Rivka. So he said his brother saw me, but he, he wasn't there at that minion. But you can't escape. Those people are watching you. They know you. There's a gonadia. I wish I knew the name. I don't know the name. And Reb Moshe says something else. You see, Talmudi Chachamim wound up being exiled all over Russia. Yeshiva people wound up being exiled all over Russia. They would have seen him. They would have known him. No matter where the man was. So you say he was in Siberia. He was in, he was in this part of Russia. He was in that part of Russia. No matter where he was, people would have known him. This man would have surfaced. Everyone knew. He was, was on the level of a Rebaran Kotler. See, that's why I wish I knew what the name was. A wife and children who reached America. I don't know. I don't know who they mean. I don't know. And, and, no one, and not only that, he says. Not only would people have seen him. See, because remember, it's a big, big, big Russia. So he went to, where did he go? Went to Siberia, went to Georgia, went to Bukhara. Where he wind up? The Russians exiled him. They didn't want the Jews near. The, I explained to you, they didn't want the Jews near the battlefront, so they pushed them further in. But wherever he went, there were yeshiva people who would have known this is. Not only that, listen to this: the Yeshlo Krovim Gedolei Torah he knows who to contact. He has giants of Torah in America, giants of Torah in Israel. I don't know what family he means. Maybe the Soloveitchik family. Maybe the Feinstein family. No, it's, he would know who to contact. All you have to do is tell the Red Cross, Rabbi, maybe the Cutler family. I don't know what family he means. Not the Feinstein. Feinstein family did not have Gedolim in Israel. But the Cutler family had Rabbi and Cutler in America, Rabbi Sazalman in Israel. The Rebbe's family had the Rav in America, had the Briska Rav, Rav Velvel. Uh, I, I told you, Moshe Rabbi Meisman thinks his uncle was like the Briska Rav. He's confusing the two uncles. One uncle, Taka was, as Rabbi Moshe Meisman described him, but that's Rav Velvel. So, so th- you know, these are such names. Rebani Shalalim, you could send a letter to Yeshiva University, please forward to Rabbi Soloveitchik. 
It's no big deal. I mean, anyone would know where to find these people. And, and, and he says, no one, no one has heard from this individual. And by now, everyone has gotten out. All the people who survived, what did they do? They contacted their relatives. They plead us, bring us to America. Bring us to the United States. Get us visas. Get us passports. Supply the money. Relative after relative. You all know the stories that went on. It's, it's, it's no secret. And he says, this man, no one saw him. No one heard from him. And no one but no one was contacted by him. So Rabbi Moshe says, we have to do everything we can to help this poor woman after three years of being in a gunner after the war. And of course, Rabbi Moshe raises the obvious issue, the issue of the Satna Rebbe raised, how can we be certain, how can we be sure there's always the chance he fell between the cracks? Absolutely. But with all that being said, there was never a more greater example than it's Silver the Rabbanan, than Ravashi. Rabbi says it clearly. Here you have a man who is a God of the Torah. And a God of Torah, where you have telegraph and telephone and Red Cross and international mail. And he says, the sheet of Rabbezev Redun here, the Avad Zichro has to become a Lachatchila, not just to be the Avad. What the Gemara says, you don't make the woman leave her second husband. Here, a man of the stature, and add that to the obvious rove that the majority of men who were in Lithuania at the moment the Nazis came in were killed. The majority of men who were in Russia and exiled and are not heard from by 1948 died of malnutrition, privation. I told you, the Russians didn't kill anyone. The Russians did, I heard this from people, the Russians did not kill anyone. But when you go to live in Siberia, it's not exactly uh, going to live in Florida. And then there was a World War II, the problems of food, the rationing. Rabbi Shechter told me a fascinating story how the Rav comes to his installation in Stanford, Connecticut. It's World War II, it's 1942. So the Rav calls him Sunday morning, the day of the installation, and he says to Rabbi Shechter, you know, trains ran in a much less scheduled World War II. Everything was the army, the army, the army. He says, the only train I can get this Sunday goes to New Haven, not to Stanford. The train to Stanford leaves too early. I can't leave Boston that early. Rabbi Shechter says, Rabbi Salavechik, I'll have a car and a driver waiting for you in New Haven. You know what it meant to get a driver? So you're wondering, what's the problem? Get a driver. Can anyone tell me what's the big deal? Imagine the schud to pick up Rabbi Soloveitchik in New Haven. Gentlemen, the rationing, gasoline, everything was rationed. It's World War II. You're using your gas to go to New Haven. That's the gas you need to get to work during the week. You understand? It's World War II. I still remember. My mother, for the butcher, can still remember. For sugar, everything was rationed. It was unbelievable, World War II. So if in America there was rationing, imagine in Siberia what it was like. So the overwhelming majority died. It's Trey Rubey. And Rav Moshe is Mata the Almana to remarry. It's, it's a fascinating shiva. The way Rav Moshe talks about the Adam Gadol, the yeshiva world, 
everyone would have known it's a fascinating chiva. And he says the whole concept in Kornik Ramesha that Gafa Rapa, what the Gemara talks about, the Tzuvah the Rabbanan, Pizman Hazer, it's Adif many times over because of what I told you. Today we may all be a Gafa Rapa. Allah Hatama Vakama, where he was a Gafa Rapa, an Adam Gadol. It's an unbelievable chiva. I only regret I can't figure out who it is. Anyone have a guess? Who could it be? Who could it be? You know something? There must be Litvakin who know. Who do we ask? Who do we ask? What do you say, David? No, no, no. Rabbi Teller wasn't involved at that time, but maybe he knows. Tell me, is anyone going to see Rabbi Teller? Danny, was he your Rebbe? Does anyone have Shaykhist him? You know what? Do me a favor. Remind me after class. I'll send Rabbi Tendler a fax via Rabbi Chalap. It's a not a bad idea. Let's ask Rabbi Tendler. Maybe Rabbi Shisan. So let's let's start with Rabbi Tendler. Interesting, because you got to remember, in 1948, when Rabbi Shisan wrote this chiva, Rabbi Tendler was in Yeshiva College. He wasn't yet. Uh, you understand? He was in baby pants. You got to remember, he didn't even know his wife to be yet. So, but but it's an idea. If any son will know, it's Reb David, not not uh, not Reb Reuven. You understand? Reuven is younger than I am. In 1948, he was a kid. He was a, didn't even know how to whistle properly. But uh, Reb David, Reb David Feinstein, it's a not a bad idea. So remind me after class. We'll send the facts. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Yeah. Okay. See, the problem is, I lasted this this particular year. I lasted 12 years ago. You understand what I'm saying? So 12 years, it's on your mind, you forget. By the time you come back to it, 12 years later, I could have asked Mrs. Hutner. Mrs. Hutner would have known. I guarantee it, she would have known. Okay. Now I want to show you, coming back now, moving on beyond the Holocaust, show you a, uh, a, an interesting shiver relating, relating to Treyru Bey as well, of Vatzichro. And here I'm quoting from Igrat Moshe, I'm quoting Siman Mem Chet. And, and uh, here, uh, it, the Chiv is written, 1955. And uh, look, look at the way it begins. Look at the problem here. In relation to the Yaguna, that you have testimony, and here if you don't know English, you'll never know what Rabbi is talking about. A thousand years from now, it's like the word Marufia. Remember I told you Marufia? I took a graduate school course. We spent three months trying to figure out what the word Marufia means in the Rishonim. Uh, the 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 uh, the Geshem uses the word. All the Ashkenazic early Rishonim used the word Marufia. The Marufia, Mishayshlo Marufia. And until today, you were not sure what the word means. It only means monopoly, a monopole. But it's not so simple. Here, Reb Moshe writes. I'm reading the Hebrew. A dutar koat may have department shehediu be document shalar ba airplane. And this was the whole question that uh, you're talking about. You're talking about uh, a document, an, uh, an official War Department document. A plane crashed in the English Channel. Nothing was heard from the people who were on the plane since. Now, Reb Moshe doesn't write when this plane crashed. What it, what it means, Reb Moshe doesn't write. Uh, it could be, it's talking about World War II, but the Chiba was first written in 1955. 
It could very well be a girl, a woman that uh, took you fine, you know, for some girls. Some girls it goes easy. Some of you fellows are married. Those girls are very lucky. They married you. How old were they? 20, 21? How old were you guys when you got married? Well, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Josh, what do you say? How old? Uh, I was 22 when you're married. I knew 22 is fairly young. How old was Ilana? 23 already. God, I thought I taught her only yesterday. My daughter, there's only one daughter got married at 22. My daughter got married at 20 and 19, respectively. All right, it's gegang in gring. If you, if you, uh, Danny, Danny, uh, how old's the girl you're looking for? We'll see. We'll see. Mary, you'll see. You'll be seeing her around in 10 years. It's not so good. Better clean off your glasses. Do me a favor. Going back to Chicago now. New York. Look around. There's some girls in New York. But remember, if it's a girl that doesn't want to come in Aliyah, I pity you. You're finished. Find a girl. Aliyah values. Otherwise, you're a slave to the money, to the treadmill. No matter how much you earn, you'll earn 50 times what I've earned, but it won't be enough. I earn 50 times less, Baruch Hashem, and it's enough. Bread and water, I live like a king. Believe me, bagels here, go to, go to Geula, that bagel guy, he is fabulous. With all of bunkers, and I, I'd like to give my time with business, I can't do it. The salty bagels in Geula, at a shekel 50 apiece, top anything I ever got on the west side for, for a dollar. They charge you a dollar for a bagel, you can choke on it. Here for a shekel 50, divide it down by four, menleptvia melech, a king, a king, oh wow. The famous place around the corner from Rehov Yishaya. It's open 24 hours a day. I don't know the name. Next to the string store. You walk down the steps. You Everyone else. Around the corner from the Shtiblach. And the, there's no sign. There's nothing. You just see two doors. You fall down. You see a big sign. The Bedats. You buy bagels, cake, challah, whatever you want. You catch your minions of commotion at davening. I walk by there 11 o'clock in the morning. The Hasidma first coming to daven chakras. I walk by with a sign. The Vilna Gong was right. The Vilnagon was right. I never get three, I never get five feet with that sign. They ripped me apart, you lousy why you guys are one thirty in there, you see? Yeah. The the Vilnagon was right or wrong. I saw the Satna Rebbe taking off his trillin four o'clock in the afternoon. I was all of fifteen years old. I'm looking at the Satna. I almost college. Then Abba Branspiegel tells me on the boat. It's a famous story. Abba was and I was on the boat with the Satna coming to America. He says the Rebbe finishes davening at four o'clock. And one of Abba's friends goes over to the Rebbe and he's davening. The Rebbe turns to him and says, all in Yiddish, and I'm training, he says, the Rebbe turns to, turns to Abba's friend and says, what are you davening Shachas now for? So the guy says, Rebbe, I'm doing like you, I'm emulating you. And the Satan Rebbe says to him, my father davened Shachas at this hour, but your father davened in the morning. I follow my father, you follow your father. No, the guy walked away, of course. That's what the Rebbe told him. You can imagine, either, either the Rebbe's dumb, he figured, or he said the Rebbe's, you know, playing games with me. The Rebbe Dobbins, if you see me Dobbins, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, what guy's not going to like? I told you the story with the Drakes, remember? What was it? Dugans, the Drakes, no, Drakes. Remember I told you? The Robert Arkezzi's Drakes! That's when I learned. That was f- almost 40 years ago. From that moment on, I learned that I walk around, I think no one's watching me. God is watching me. God is watching me. 50 other eyes are on me. Be careful. You're eating, you're drinking, whatever it is. Be careful. Because they're going to say, Rabbi Kefit drank Coca-Cola. He's Rav Landau's Heksha. Rav Landau is a Chabadnik. Chabad today is in Cherem. And nevertheless, Rakefet was Samach and Landau's Heksha. You know what happened in B'nai Brak? You don't know. I'll tell you a Purim joke for Pesach. This woman almost got killed. She came into the store and she asked the storekeeper, you know, with all the tension going on and now with the election, Degelatera and then a good Israel, she says, Avu is the Coca-Cola mit Rav Landau's Heksha. 
And the storekeeper said, "Oh, the Coca-Cola does licked off from dread. It's on. It's on the floor." A few Hasidim heard the guy that the Coca-Cola licked in dread with Ravalenda's Hachshir. They killed the storekeeper and killed the woman. You understand? You got to be so careful here, David. You don't know Yiddish, so you can't understand the joke. And lick the chechshu, lick the dread. The, the coal is on the floor. You understand? You're looking for the cottons. The guy thought he was saying Rabbi Landau licked the dread, that he was a Degla Torah person. Before it was over, the storekeeper was dead, the woman was dead, and the bottles of coal that the guys ran out didn't pay for it and had a happy say that Dalit Kol sold all night with Coca Cola. Licked in dread. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know what it means? Don't say it in public. Licked in dread. When your girlfriend tells you David gay licked in dread and call me in 84 years, she's telling you get lost, drop dead. That's what it means. Get it? Not exactly a compliment. That's what it means, gentlemen. Some women get married quickly. They have muscle. Other women. I have students. The most wonderful, beautiful, intelligent, from pious girls. They're pushing 30. Segatnishit. Great girls. You have to have muscle. Could be he's talking about World War Two here, but this woman too, she found another sucker. I mean, another potential husband. It took ten years time after World War Two. So that because it would seem to indicate World War Two, because you're talking about War Department, English Channel. I can't remember after World War Two that there was ever a need for the War Department to inform you that something happened in the English Channel. Am I right, Jack? I can't remember the World War Two. I mean, I'm saying if you tell me Folkland, I can understand. But after World War Two, English Channel. So, uh, so Reb Moshe here. First of all, I love his language. He says, "What we're saying along? Yesh kantrei rube, beilu hanoflime airplane, haporeach." You see his language. You know, it's it's kador poreach. It's rabbinic Hebrew. Today in modern Hebrew, no one in the world would know what that's talking about. Airplane poreach. Go in and Ehud Barak and say, "Mr. Barak, you want to be prime minister? Do you know Hebrew?" Betach. I'd like you to explain these words. Airplane haporeach. You understand? But uh, we would say, flying in the air. He uses the word, it's rabbinic Hebrew. They used to use these words when, 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 the, when the dirigibles came out. There was a whole shaila if a dirigible is over your sukkah. So they called it a kadur poreach. You understand? The big dirigible is hovering over your little sukkah. Could you imagine the question? A fascinating question. I believe the Sholem Meshav deals with it. But anyway, so this is his word. He says, when you fall from an airplane, the airplane drops into the sea, the overwhelming majority of people are dead. Who survives a crash like that? That's number one. And number two, he says, it's ten years that she hasn't heard from her husband. Oh, he, here's the answer to my question. He uses the word ten years, so it means it's from World War II. He says, it's ten years since the war ended. It's And of course, he quotes, The post office. Anyone know what Zeitungen means? Zeitungen, no? Newspapers. Zeitung, Zeitungen. We have newspapers. And you can inform the whole world. If this is the case, we have, he uses the words telegrammas, the telephones. It's amazing. You gotta know the English vocabulary. Telegrams, telephones, and uchadome. And he says today we have instant communication. And he says that Chad Tom Sof already made reference to this. 
In our times, you have instant communication. Under such circumstances, you absolutely have the Shita Rebleser Meivadun. And in a case like this, the Chachmei Hadar have to evaluate it. And if they feel that there's no doubt that he's dead, then you have to pray to obey the majority who are on an airplane that crashes in the English Channel are dead, and the majority that survived would have contacted their wives by now. If they didn't, it shows he's dead. Then Rav Moshe runs off the trigger. It's fascinating. Rav Moshe says, But he says, Nevertheless, to be matahar, and it's good that she should be present when the baton sits. Now, what does Rabbi Moshe mean by this? This is all psychological. It's simply, you see, a question like this, that is, as, I, as you'll see in my book, the Rav talks about this in 56, 55. So the Rav talks about uh, various questions. What's important is, there's certain questions that are minorly questions. You all know, I always give the example, Danny, Danny, how that? I always give the example of Yantav Shani. Yantav Shani, I'm not Chasagal, I'm not Mazazal, Yantav Shani. But Yantav is a minor league question. Whatever you're passing, you can't be wrong. When you're dealing with Aguna, you're dealing with Dinina Farshad, you're dealing with Mamzairut, you're dealing with the most difficult of halachic questions. So one thing you have to be certain, that you're dependent upon the woman. She's the inquirer. You're dependent upon the woman. She has to know how serious this is. You've got to be sure she's not lying. Do it with the baitin, with the woman present. It's good common sense. Now, in this entire shiver, with all that we said, there's uh, one other aspect. One other aspect that becomes very important. And that aspect, I'll spend the rest of this year... There is an entire world of literature on that aspect. What am I referring to? How did this chiva get off the floor? How did the sheila get off the floor? A document from the War Department. And this brings us into the classic halachic question, how reliable are government documents? Ultimately, it affects your day as well. How reliable are government regulations? All of you know. I don't know how many of you are. I, I know one thing, and I know if I can tell you a very interesting story. ShopRite made a deal with Supersoul. And during the last year, they brought in millions of dollars worth of ShopRite products that were sold in Supersoul. All right. The products basically cost you, let's say, if a product in America would cost you $2, it costs $3.50 here, which you can understand. They have to transport it. And I, uh, doesn't, it's fair. I can understand it. Suddenly, I take a look in the Super Soul in Hanover, opposite my daughter. They're selling uh, ShopRite ice cream cheaper than it costs in America. Half gallons, point. 90 shekel. Break it down, a drop over two dollars. Half gallons. I couldn't believe my eyes. I bought two, came back the week afterwards, bought two. Still have one left in my freezer. Unbelievable. 
This week already I saw they cleaned out the area. And I started to wonder, I can't understand this. Ice cream, they had to transport from America. Cost a lot more to transport ice cream than a can of beans. It needs a freezer. It can't be, it has to be kept. If you don't freeze it, it melts. It, it's worthless. It has to be frozen the whole tr- from, from, from the production to, to, to the cargo ships. However, they, they said, I can't believe they sent it by plane. It doesn't make sense. It has to go with cargo ships, the trucks, the loading. The unloading here, reaching central shop, reaching central supercell, distribution, we punish a lot of cheaper than they sell it in America. There are no free rides in life. I mean, come on, there has to be seichel to this. So I walked from shop right, uh, from supercell slash shop right down to the Boston, down to the Rebbe, you know, at the Dabminch at Boston, Boston Rebbe Schlitter. Now, whenever I'm in Boston, God is kind to me. My mind works doubly well. And right in Boston, I figured out what was happening. Can anyone figure it out? It's very simple. It's Chalavakam. How can you sell Chalavakam ice cream in Hanof? We know you did. The word went out. It's Chalavakam. You should touch it. Leave it for that rotten, vicious, malicious, hideous, handed, depraved, degenerate, the bad stuff. There's no good wine. You bummy named Dominic. How can you touch it? Sorry, I want to ask you a question. How do we eat those of us that eat chalavaka? I mean, I never saw the rub. I told you, it's the famous story with Neil Turk when the rub says, get me a quart of milk. And Neil is shaking. Rebbe, Rebbe, what, what, what type of milk? What do you mean what I dealt with? A quart, a simple quart of milk. Rebbe, you know what the Shiloh was. Neil was shaking because by the late 70s, early 80s, whatever it was already in America, many of the guys were mocked in chalav Israel. When I grew up, Chalav Yisrael was sour, was tasteless, balsam. Who touched it? Who looked at it? That was in Williamsburg. By the time it left Williamsburg, it grew a beard. By the time it reached uptown Manhattan, Jack, you don't can't appreciate this, Bathurst. By the time it reached lower Bathurst, to upper Bathurst, it grew a beard already. It was as sour as sour could be. Whoever had a cup of coffee with Chalav Yisrael, that wasn't sour. Today, Chalav Yisrael in America, it's like the tra- you can't believe what you have. 2%, 1%, 5% cottage cheese, this type of milk, that type of candy, this, that, the other thing. All you're lacking is Kavels and Hershey. When you, when you take on Chalav Yisrael, you can't eat Hershey's and Kavels. And believe me, that's like a nazi. You have to bring a carbon chattas, Mishi, Ziatat Smo, Minhanatolim. Or, or, or uh, I tasted them, they're salty. I, can't, I don't know what the hell they're, they're to me. Let the guy choke on them. Uh, the friend was you see, you guys have good friends. My friend, fabulous, uh, couldn't be better. Lubavitcher girl, beautiful girl, couldn't be better. Why do you say Lubavitcher? Thank God. So anyway, that's the interesting question. Can you be Somach and government supervision? And, and government documents, and okay, you've all studied the sugyas. Here, of course, it's much more serious. Notice that Reb Maisha accepts the government document 100%. This 100%. Reb Maisha doesn't have the slightest hesitancy that the document is reliable. Now, this goes back to a very famous tshuva, of Rabbi Yitzchok Inspector. Very fascinating tshuva. And you'll find this is one of the earliest tshuva that Rabbi Yitzchok 
ever published. It appears in the Be'er Yitzchak, which was the first Seifa out of the five he published. He was yet a young man. He was not yet in Kovna. The Be'er Yitzchak, Siman Hay, one of the earliest Shiva he ever published. And, it, it, and he writes that two great Rabbanim, he writes, Shnei Rabbanim Gedolim, came to him with a very difficult question. That a woman was married to a man, happily married, and Nebuch, the man, died young, and they had no children. And it's a terrible problem. I told you, the problem of, of Chalitza, Yibam, we don't feel so much today. Because basically speaking, people live longer and people have children. Today, the advances that have been made in medical science that help women, it's, it's Baruch Hashem. It's fabulous. Miracles. Even the whole problem, remember I once told you the need the problem, a woman that has a cycle where, where, where she can only conceive during the sixth or seventh day of the month and those days are during the Shivanakim. And even that problem we've solved medically with uh, AID, AIH, artificial insemination, husband. Even that problem we've solved, AIH. It's a fabulous world today. But here you have an example of 100 years ago, 150 years ago perhaps, where Nebuch, the husband dies, there are no children, the woman needs chlitzah. Ah, what's the problem? The husband's brother went into the army 14 years earlier and nothing has been heard from him for for 14 years don't know where he is and now three years evidently the woman met someone who's willing to marry her three years the woman has spent trying to make inquiries where is the man? And she reaches this in Russia, reaches the minister of war, and she pleads with the minister of war to command and issue an order to the commanders where her husband brother was to find him and to order him to go. She gives to this big city, Slunim. You've all heard of Slunim. I don't have to tell you. It evidently was a city where the, where, where the man was originally stationed near there. Slonim was in Ir Ve'en Israel. It still is. There's, it's a literature Hasidus. Today, Slonim until today remains a, a, a stronghold. You, you know, people don't realize how many Karlin, Slonim, uh, Lubavitch to a certain degree, these were all right Russian Hasidiyot. These were not, uh, these were not Hasidiyot from, from Poland or from Hungary. Or, or, or from Galicia, I should say. What today we call Hungary, then was called Galicia. And, and send him to Slanim. Let him give Chlitza to his Yavama. And now she gets a message from the army that they investigated. This man that she is looking for took ill, was hospitalized, and died. And she goes even further she contacts the rabbi of the area where the army was located where this man was located now it's very interesting what they write about the 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 rabbanim and this takes you into jewish history 
all these communities had two rabbis. Can anyone tell me what I'm talking about? Uh, beginning with 1840, the Russian government passed the law that in order to be a rabbi, you had to know how to read and write Russian and have at least a gymnasium education. I don't have to tell you this law was passed. If you know the whole history with Max Lilienthal, uh, the rabbi that wrote in from Germany, who was what was then called the Reform Rabbi, although I have to say, for the credit of Max Lilienthal, by today's standards, he would be considered a conservative rabbi, not reform. And the Russian government was very, very anxious to russify its citizens. I don't want to go into great detail, not something you have to know from Jewish history, but Russia had a problem that exists until today. The indigenous Russian is the absolute minority in Russia. And Russia always feared that it would fall apart from inattention, inner strife. The Russian Empire, the Soviet Empire, ultimately falls apart. One of the factors that pulled it apart is that the Russian Empire consisted of 15 socialist republics. Russia was only one out of 15. And even in Russia, Russians were a majority but there were many other minorities in the Russian Republic, as you know, with the infighting uh, in, in, part of, in parts of so-called Russia, which is only one-fifteenth of the empire. In order to solve the problem, they came upon the idea to russify the population, give them a Russian identity. Part of it meant secular studies. Things that we take absolutely for granted. Even in Satma, in Williamsburg, you learn how to read and write in English. Kedole Rabbanim opposed it. They were worried, the influence, leaving the ghetto. It's the old story of tradition and change. The fear. Kedole Rabbanim opposed it. Ultimately, you know, the Russian yeshiva is shut down by the Russian government on January 5, 1892, because, or, pardon me, January 22, 1892, which which uh, corresponded to Hey Shvat, the 5th of Shvat, 1892, because they refused to introduce a few hours of secular study and they shut down Volushin. Instead, the Russian government opened what became two rabbinic seminaries, one in Vilna and one in Zhitomir. Vilna you all know about, you probably wonder why Zhitomir. Zhitomir was a big center of intelligent Jews. It was the biggest printing center in Eastern Europe. Because it was a big printing center, you needed typesetters who were Talmudic Chachamim. Among the typesetters were many Talmudic Chachamim who were also masculine, enlightened. So Zhitomir and Vilna. In every community, basically, what happened was there would be two Rabbanim. The Rav who was the Gadol Torah, the recognized Rav whom the Jews knew was the Rav, and the government appointee who dealt with the government on a daily basis with marriage, divorce, death, birth, wrote Russian, knew how to read Russian, could speak Russian. Generally speaking, the official Rabbanim never usurped the authority of the Gedolei Israel. They knew what their role was. The only exception is Vilna, where during the interbellum period, World War II was fought in Vilna long before it was fought anywhere else, because Rabbi Chaim Zagrzynski resided in Vilna, and the community elected Rabbi Yitzchak Rubinstein to be the chief rabbi of Vilna. And that's a famous episode, a famous story, much has been written on it, but generally speaking, 
I wrote on it, yes. Could be. Chaim Grata's stories are all based upon life and he was from Vilna himself. Could be. I don't recall. Tell me the name. I've read some of Chaim. read the Yeshiva. I read some of his work, the Aguna, but I don't recall a story based upon that. It was a tremendous machmokin. If you're familiar with the Mikhtavei Chafetz Chaim, in the Mikhtavei Chafetz Chaim, you will find endless documents dealing with that machloket. So what happened here was it's the official rabbi who knows Russian, who corresponds with the government, and he contacts the government, and he requests that the government see to it that this woman give chlitza. And the Russian government respects the official rabbi, because this is a rabbi who corresponds with them in Russian. And they respect him. And the official rabbi, the state rabbi, gets the same answer, that he was taken to the shpital, which is hospital, and he died there. And they give an official answer, an official document from the Russian army, from the high-ranking officers, whatever it is. I don't think it required an officer, let's say, not like my son was. Let's say this is a major. Don't need a lieutenant colonel to you. But the major, whoever he was, sent this document to the police of Slanim to tell the Kazina Rav. Kazina Rav, Kazina was the Russian word for the recognized government rabbi to tell him that this man was dead. And it was an official signed document with the seal of the army, of the police, given to the rabbi from the government. The man is dead. There's no one to request Khalidza from me. And this was the question that came to Rabbi Zchokhan Inspector. Historic question. Mamish history. And, and Rabbi Zchokhan gets involved with the Sugyim Vigitin. You've all learned the Sugya, Daftet, Yudalef. You're all familiar with the Sugya. No, what's the Sugya? That what about a star that is Ola Bevetin Shalakum? Ba'arka'ot. What we call a star shall arka'ot. Now what are we asking? Any star that comes from a non-Jewish Beitin is absolutely valid. They're reliable. If two people went into a Gentile Beitin and made a deal between them, and the Gentile Beit Mishpat, let me use modern Hebrew, we wouldn't use Akaot. Akaot is the proper word in rabbinic Hebrew, and in modern Hebrew it's probably the proper word, although they would use Beit Mishpat. But let's use the word Akaot, like the Gemara. It's totally reliable. Comes to money, you obligate yourself. Hey, wait a minute, how do you know that the Gentiles are telling the truth? And here we come to the famous cloud, Uman Lomare Al Nafshei. What does it mean? Judges, professionals have a reputation to uphold. No professional is going to compromise his integrity and ruin his career and ruin his life. And if it's an official we can depend on them 100% that they will be reliable. The only star that we can't depend upon is what? A get. 
Because again, that involves Dine Yishut. And Dine Yishut has the basic cloud, you have to be involved with Dine Kedushin and Gitten. A guy is not involved with this. There's no concept of Kedushin by a guy. There's a concept of Yishut, of course. It's one of the, the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. They can't commit adultery. But our concept of, of Kedushin and Get Kritut, they don't have. And therefore, they can't issue a get outside of a get. When it deals with dinimamonet, we accept. By the way, you should know that the reform movement, and their when they still dealt with halacha, they interpreted that sugin gitten to mean that even a get is good. I mean, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. Among other things, the din of the malchuta, and it's a get A get is a shtar. The, the, the mission talks about a shtar. A get is a shtar. It's unbelievable. But uman lomare al nafshei, and Rabbi Tzlochanan applies it to the army, to the governor, to the commanders, and a good deal of our life outside of the ghetto is based upon this principle. People have a reputation to uphold, and this is—it goes right across the line. This chuba is epic making. Generally speaking, we accept every government document at face value. Uman lomore al Exactly what Rabbi Yitzchol Hanan says here. 100% accepted at face value. It goes way beyond that. Kashrut. Kosher milk. Chalavakum. Rev. Moshe writes in his famous Trivet, you know what it means? What are you going to say? That let's take Borton, Sheffield, Seal Test, all the big milk companies when I was growing up. Today, what do you have? Delwood, you have other companies. I don't know. I'm not, I don't live in America. You mean they're going to take pig's milk? You know what that means, Rev. Moshe says? It means, first of all, that the person bringing the milk to the country, company, he has to bribe all the people to accept it because... Government law only allows cow's milk, not pig's milk. Then the people that accept it have to bribe their bosses. And their bosses have to bribe their bosses. Uman Lamorial Nafshay, you're dealing here with major firms. It goes right down the line. In England, Chief Rabinet issues a book dealing with hundreds of products produced in England. Many of these products that they say are kosher, not under hashkacha. The chief mammoth visits once a year, once in two years. They keep in touch with the companies. They just depend upon what the goyim tell them. These are products that they don't have to really supervise. The goyim tell them this is all we make here. We bring nothing else in. These are our ingredients. You depend upon them. Uman lo morei al nafshei. This is right down the line. And in Dina Yishud, you're dealing here with Eshet Yishud, you're dealing here with Lotia, Eshet Hameta Chutza, you're dealing here with a Lavdi writer. And Rabbi Tzlochan and Paskin Slahalacha, you accept the document that the rabbi, and it's not, you know, a Godlby Israel, this is a, a Rav Mitam, as Daniel used, the correct name. It's a Rav Mitam, that's the word we use, Mitam HaMem Shalah, Mitam HaMedina. It was a word used in rabbinic literature, not so honorably, like a riot, the Kazimarav, but the Rav Mitam. You know, he was the one who went to high school. It wasn't the Godlby Israel. 
Once in a while, there were few exceptions of Gedolei Torah who also had a high school degree. Few exceptions. But generally speaking, it was a Rav Mitam. But it's true. What I said, those of you that know Jewish history, more or less, the Rav Mitam knew his place. In Vilna, you had a head-on clash. But outside of Vilna, generally speaking, the Rav Mitam knew his place. Fine. Document accepted. La halacha. That's Reb Moshe with the English Channel. That's Reb Yitzchol Hanan. Another example. Reb Yitzchol Hanan Spectre. Much later already. Here already, we're coming to Ein Yitzchak, Siman Yud Tet. Ein Yitzchak, Siman Yud Tet, Chelik Aleph. So this already is much later. This already is the fourth volume out of the five, that the great Rabbi Yitzchak Inspector is to publish. And here, very interesting. Nishalti mi Rav Again, it's a shame he doesn't, you know, use names. Who did he mean, Rav Gaon? Interesting. Al Devara Gunamashe Eidechad Hayid B'Shem Anshechal Yudi the Omalod and Erang B'Milchama. And this Jew, Eidechad, met a soldier, a Jewish soldier, Yankala. Let's call him Yankala. And Yankala testified he was standing on the battlefield next to this Jew, and his friend was killed. In addition, the woman received an official letter from the War Department informing her her son her husband was killed. And this, of course, is the question. Can you be Mekil? Eidechad mipi anshei Remember what we spoke about based upon the Gemara in Yavamat? At war, you're always worried with the dummy. Maybe he's imagining it. How can he be certain? He doesn't say, what do you have to say to be absolutely believed? Ukvativ. I buried him. Doesn't say it. Maybe be the dummy. It's war. I told you, war is helpless, skeleton. You should never know from war. We have to be prepared to fight wars, but we should never know from war. By the way, the next war that will be fought, I saw the army did training last week. It's unbelievable. Everything computerized. I used to remember in 82, when I was up in Lebanon, so I remember I gave a shear um, under a mountain. It was an amazing thing. And the the, the um, commander of the base, the Skanaluf, about 800 people at the Shear, was a whole thing. We had the rabbinic chief, the choir of the chief rabbinate with me, you know, put on a whole performance. So after the Shear, the Skanaluf wanted on him, he took me on a tour. And he shows, uh, we go between two mountain ranges, I see unbelievable uh, long range cannons. It's 82. So I ask him, how can you fire from here? There's two mountains next to you. And he explained to me, they purposely put the guns between the mountains, planes can't get at them, everything is computerized. You get a projectile reading, you computerize how high the ammunition has to go up, at what point it heads towards Damascus. It's unbelievable. And that was 82. So you see... The battlefield of tomorrow, you've got to be a computer genius. I can't even get a commission. Tomorrow I want to join the army. 
You're an AK. You don't even know how to turn a computer on. But my grandchildren, Baruch Hashem, kids of, of, of four or five, they're already computer geniuses to me. They turn on, play with a mouse, move up, down, kill, shoot, fight, what goes on in that computer. The war games these kids are playing already, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and here you have the classic problem. Guy says, all right, he was standing next to me. He was killed. What do you mean he was killed? Did you bury him? Did you put a needle in him? Did you try to resuscitate him? They're shooting. Who knows what, what, what war this is? Probably from the 1870s. Russia was fighting with Japan. Who knows? Russia was fighting with Turkey. Uh, check your history, if I'm, if I'm correct. There were all types of little wars. Thousands got killed. This was soldier against soldier. Gun against gun. Hand-to-hand combat. You run for your life. The guy next to you killed. What can you do? You got to go further. Adam Carvets a lot more. You have to survive. You all know Private Ryan. What happened? The V Day, the Battle of the Bulge, Normandy. I mean, I lived it. I was a kid. My grandchildren. They they want to hear all the details. I don't want to hear anything. I lived it. I'm sick of it. But but these are real problems. But here, in addition, you have an official letter from the government. And Rabbi Yitzchokhanen, much more than the soldier. The soldier is a little part of the chetah because of the problem I raised. It's a battlefield with the government. An official letter of the government? Absolutely believable. I'm quoting from Shalom. And he says they will be shakranim. Busha chepa. I'll call there vadai daiktu daiku heitreis. It's unbelievable. This is this is what I told you. The Rambam at the end of Hilchet Gerushin. Why do we accept all these kulat neidim? Whoever heard of such a thing? Aidni pa, aidotisha. I spoke with the women. I dealt with, uh, with 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 this with the women. With with the, I worked it into the Shia. I dealt with uh, the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. But it's unbelievable, eh? Why do you accept all these pluliated? Nowhere else do you accept it. Here by Yeshatish. I mean, it's unbelievable. The most difficult laws in the world. We accept all the kulat. And the Rambam says, because this is one time that if you're telling a lie, you're going to be caught. If someone comes in and testifies that, that Chaim killed all the murders you have here in Israel recently are unbelievable. But all right, we have two bodies. They testify Chaim killed. There's no way ever to know who killed what. A guy, two guys in the, in the Kola have a big machloket, they bought a lottery ticket, they won 22 million shekel, and a whole machloket who paid for the ticket. We'll never know, without the aid, there's no way of knowing who paid for that lottery ticket. But here, if the man is alive, he comes back. You look like a damn fool. A guy testified, yeah, he died in the war, the woman can remarry. A year later, the guy is back. My gosh. He says, here the army, can you imagine the bullshit pun him, an official army document? And I have to tell you, the words of Sulchanan are unbelievable. You know how I know it's unbelievable? Look at the three boys missing from Sultan Yaakov. 
you know that I met uh, with, with the general in the Israeli army early this year. I was accepted as a, as a borer by the army, by the politicians, by the government, and by the parents. And the army, Mamish, doesn't know. Understand? They don't want, they can't say, they, they believe that the boys are dead, they don't know for sure. They don't want to make fools out of themselves. It's just what Sukhan is saying here. The army refuses to declare the boys missing in action. It's the only three boys, four boys, Arad, Ran Arad, which is Iran, and the three boys from Sultan Yaakov, we don't know what happened. They're missing in action, but we cannot declare them dead. Refuse to declare them, not missing in action, refuse to declare them dead. Well, they have a category in the army, dead all of you know on Zion Adar, Moshe Rabbeinu's yard site, so the army rabbinate fasts and they have special ceremonies all over the military cemeteries for those that did not come to final burial. But they know they're dead, like Moshe Rabbeinu. No one knows. But here, these three boys, the army doesn't want to issue a statement because they don't want to go out on a limb. They're not certain. They're absolutely not certain. As much as they want to believe that the three boys are dead, they're absolutely not certain and we couldn't reach a conclusion. They have never told the families, sit shiva. Of course, there's no shiva today. It would be Lukar Atzamit, whatever it is, you would sit for half a minute. But alright, you sit for half an hour. Sit for a day. Whatever it is, the families probably would sit for a day, simply psychologically. And this is what the Bishonim says. It's overwhelming. See, now of course, this means that you have respectable people. Otherwise it'd be Kherpabusha. I don't know, Bisman Hazel, we've lost all shame, but I still think this would apply. You understand when I think of Clinton and, and his escapades and Monica and what the newspapers say now, you think of the royal family, you think of the idiot, the future king of England, he just featured Argentina, some floozy, half naked, uh, was dancing with him, he takes a picture, a woman is all over. I don't know. The, 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 the reformed rabbinate, they just ordained two women so the guy who's ordaining them is kissing. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, they've, they've lost, uh, we've lost all sense of Torah. I'm going to, at the end of the year, I'm going to give each Michalag girl, each Midrash girl a certificate and hug and kiss her. Where are we living? Where, and, they, and they're going to find me 30,000 shekels because I refuse to sit with a reform reverend. It's unbelievable. Where are we living? Sick. So I don't know. But I would believe this still applies. See, on this level, I can't believe a government, I can't believe an army, I can't believe an official body would purposely, willingly tell a lie. I may be wrong, but I believe that what Rabbi Yitzchokhanan says absolutely applies. Okay. One more example. Just let me check my notes. Yeah, this is it. One more example. Same era. Siman Lamed Aleph. Fascinating. A man was missing from his house, Zman a long time. And his wife uh, started wondering, where is he? Lo'alainu. Didn't come home. You want an example of this from life? Let me make it real. You've heard the name. When I, one of the people, when, when I did my doctorate, one of my committee members was Rabbi Dr. Professor Sidney B. Honig. You've heard the name, Dr. Honig. 
taught, he was a student of Zeitling, taught at Yeshiva from day one, taught in Bernard Revel. He was rabbi of Young Israel of Williamsburg. You can imagine what, what the Young Israel of Williamsburg, what life was like in Williamsburg if you could have a YU rabbi who was there for decades. Later he was succeeded by Rabbi Weinberger, Bernard Weinberger, who of course is a Torah Vadas boy, Jewish observer, a different world. Rabbi Weinberger is still there. I met him for the first time in my life a year ago. Excuse me? She was closing this year? And interesting. Why is it closing? Pashat, no one goes to Yang Israel. So who's taking it over? Hasidim? You don't know. So uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Honig is a tragic story. I know Rabbi Honig's family well. Rabbi Honig's wife uh, leaves that morning to go and to do some shopping and she never comes home. And you know, you start worrying. Your wife generally comes home 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. It's night time. Calls the police. And finally, they found the body. It was in a morgue. She had a heart attack on the train and died on the train. On the subway. If you want to know what the New York subway is like, here's this woman lying there dead. Someone slipped the diamond ring off her finger. It was never found. You understand? When they found the body, personal, they found the watch. She had a purse. Diamond ring was gone. Now, there's an example. Lower Lane, it's a horrible way to die. Imagine to die on a train and be shifted to a morgue, but by process of elimination, he called, a few calls were made, and they uh, put two and two together. He identified the body. It was his wife. And that's in New York, a city of so many millions. So this woman goes to the police, and the police check their records, and they tell her that in the river near the city they found a man's body just about the time she says he was missing now look at this very fascinating we'll come to this after Pesach this already is the 1870s photography is invented police regulations it's right here in the Chuva the minute you find the body you photograph the body in Maplewood, I recall Mr. Herb Dana, one of my fondest Balabatim, was the official photographer for the Newark Police. And I have to this day a lieutenant's rank in the Newark Police Department, thanks to my Balabas Herb uh, Donner. If you remind me, I'll, I'll bring it in and show it to you. It's for Purim, but it's after Purim, but still, your tape lingers on, so the badge can linger on. So the minute they fished out the body, they photographed the body. But mind you, this was after three days. Remember the mission in Yavamat? 72 hours, the body retains its contour. After 72 hours, you can basically not recognize the body. But they photographed him because these are Chukay Medina. That when you find the body in the rivers, you have to photograph it before you bury the body. And not only that, these are organized police. Kala Kavod. The police had a little bag, just like I told you, with Mrs. Honig, Zichon Lavracha, with the possessions of this man. And on the body, they found the ring, a wallet, keys, and the woman recognized all the objects. These were the man's possessions. Key is very interesting. It was his private room that he let no one into. We already carried around with him. Interesting. No? The truth. The truth. Mordechai Matthew do you have a private key that your wife is not allowed in, not to the room, but let's say a file cabinet? The truth, I want to hear. Off limits to Ilana. Yes or no? 
replenish the light, and that's all I need. I'm going to have a key that my wife can't enter. It will be broken into within minutes. You can take my word. I don't know, the modern mind, this is a European marriage. See, in Europe, the husbands, I knew. I had students. I became very close to their parents through the students. I had all the children in the family. It goes back uh, 25 years ago. So I remember it was an interesting marriage. The man was about 15 years older than his wife. No one entered his study. The father sat upstairs, had a tremendous study. You had to ask permission to visit your husband, to visit your father. There was a key. It was guarded. This is European. This is unbelievable. This is the key to the man's private room that no one is allowed to enter. Not his wife, not his children. And she recognizes the picture. And the picture is shown around to others. And they say, yes, this resembles the husband. And the woman pulls out a picture of the husband alive. And the, everyone around says there's a definite resemblance between the picture, the man alive, and the picture of the stiff pulled out of the water. Now, it's very fascinating here. Number one, all the evidence. Remember, the body is rotting away in an unmarked grave. The police will dig up the body. All you're going to have now, all that remains of the body is going to be teeth and hair. In those days, there was no way to identify the body. Today, you could identify in a minute. I mean, even 20 years ago, you could identify through the teeth. I told you, the first day in the army, you sit in a chair, they do a teeth chart of you. The first day, one, the day, one of the first things they do, get a uniform, get this, get that, take your blood, what blood, what this, what that, sit in a chair, dental technician, filling here, smelling there, this tooth, they have ways describing my son or nose all this. My youngest son-in-law is a de- dentist. Today with DNA, it's no big deal. In a minute they can identify. Those days finding the body. So they gave it a body for burial. That means nothing. But you're depending upon the police. They took a picture. The story is true. They dug up the body. You're depending upon the police. Number one, they're absolutely reliable. This is a police department. What are the words? Oman, Lomarei, Al-Nafshei. In my days, people were matter food on the basis of letters from food manufacturers. Today, I don't know whether that's entirely true because food manufacturing is so involved today, you already have to know what goes into it because it's not simple today. Russia, it's much easier to give a hechsher in Russia than in the United States because the Russian society is primitive. American society, you look at the ingredients, what goes into a piece of cake, you can drop dead, look in Israel. You buy the cakes, it's unbelievable. Fifty ingredients in, 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 a, in a whole cake that, that, that a yeshiva boy finishes in three minutes flat. They're, All right, I would take a few days on the cake. But you guys would finish it in, within, within 15 and a half minutes, 50 different ingredients. Okay, it's a little harder today. But in my time, I know that products were eaten on the basis of letters from the manufacturer. If he wrote that there was vegetable shortening and no other type of shortening, Uman no Marayan Afshay was an official letter. So everything that happened here was an official letter to government. Ah, but in addition, this is the Gemara in Yavamad. Gentlemen, is a very important principle. Sometimes water preserves a body. It may have to do with water temperature. I don't know. Someone here would have to know marine biology. Sometimes lehefech, 
that you can find a body in the water where it's cold. I remember there was once a movie thriller where they find the body of someone that disappeared 25 years later in the Arctic. They buried him, they killed him. 25 years later, you see the body floating. There he is as if he died a minute before. It was frozen. So sometimes the Gemara uses the term that the water constricts the face. And that's why the minute you dig it out, you can still identify it. And that's why that picture was so accurate. And that's why you could say even so many months later, that's the body. It could very well be one day later, there'd be nothing left to identify. Once the body comes out, but it was in the cold water, it's Russia. You know what a Russian winter is like? A Talmud of mine just took on a job in Russia from the first Kolo class. Remember the first Kolo class, 1976. He came back from Russia, psyched out. I warned him. 20 below, I said, 20 below zero, what are you complaining? I functioned in 30 below zero. I almost died. That was a different story. God was not. <laughs> God was kind to me. I had a terrible... If I ever go back to Riga again, I have to say... I came back, I discovered the synagogue, it was 85, you couldn't use a terrible period with the KGB, and it was 30 below zero, and I took a hot, and there was, in the great glorious hotel, there was no cold water, only hot water, both knobs, hot water. So I took a bath before Shabbos, from the cold to the hot, I fainted in the bath, I could have drowned, my wife was in the other room, she would have never dreamt anything happened to me. Thank God, at the last second, I lifted myself out, out of the bath, wiped myself off, told my wife, light Shabbos candles, I'm fainting. And I just lied down on the bed and I fainted. I was out for about a half hour and then I came back as if nothing happened. I asked doctors if they had a change in temperature. But God have mercy. After that, I used to warn people when it's very cold, be careful if there's no cold water and only hot water and you're going to take a bath for Shabbos, be very, very careful. God's a lot so, you see, with cold water, freezing water, they dug the body out, they took a picture, that's the person, I identify him. And it's correct, even though the body was dug out even months after the person drowned. You follow me, David? So, and then, you have in this triva the whole concept of photography. And we're going to talk about that after Pesach. Take a look, the way the halacha has changed by the invention of photography. So halacha l'maysa, you have three tremendous factors here that enable the Sulchan to be made. Now, three tremendous factors. Factor number one, uman l'mari al Police are believed. Factor number two, you can identify a body even after so many weeks the water was cold. It kept the body in its natural state. Factor number three, photography at that time. Not today. Today we have terrible problems with photography. Because with the computer, you can do anything with a picture. Guts are uphitting what students can do to a Rebbe with a computer on Purim. Suddenly, the Rebbe and Monica are dancing a tango in a thousand copies disseminated around the greater Grishkolo. Anything is, but today it's a problem. Today it's a problem. I'm, I'm very serious. Today, photography, you have to know, the picture is not tampered with. But, Mehika Hadin, photography is absolutely acceptable. So if I can reiterate, 
on this last year, Danny, listen carefully, because the boys are going to be told something that you will be missing. On this last year, on Sunday, before the big break for Chag Hagu'ula, and I mean Pesach, not Yutet Kislev. These guys, Hirsch, they don't know what I'm talking about. Yad Kislev, to them it's... Uh, Ah, Baruch Hashem, they know, uh, they know, Baruch Hashem, all right, glad to see you now, glad to, someday I'll give you a lecture on that, you'll ask me about what happened in Vilna when they wanted to celebrate Yutet Kislev, how Reb Chaim Moiser reacted, it's very fascinating, Reb Chaim Briska reacted, very fascinating, gentlemen, on this day before we break, what did we do, fascinating shear, Reb Moshe Feinstein, the Gadol Hadar, the Ravi describes, we're going to try to find out the name. One thing is for certain, Bizman Hazer, every Jew has a din of its Suvad Rabbanan, Akat Kamavakam, a real Suvad Rabbanan. It makes Rablazma Radun Shita all the stronger. The English Channel, Rav Moshe, documents. And that brings us back to Bislochan Inspector, where we saw two epic making Shivat. The army. The woman who needed chlitza, the Rav Mitam, the Kazim Rav, and the body fished out of the water. Interesting, it doesn't say how he died. Maybe it was a suicide. Maybe he fell in. That, that is not discussed in the Tshuva. Halacha Lamaisa. In all these cases, Reb Meisha and Reb Sulchan Inspector were able to be Matir. And once again, the classic Aguna, we do not have a problem with in modern times. It's the self-made or the self-inflicted Aguna which is destroying and bringing Yiddishkeit to its knees. My dear students, tomorrow at 9 a.m., the last shear in the classroom that your humble servant will be saying to left the Pesach. I'll be giving some public shurim. Uh, tomorrow, Be'ezrat Hashem, Pshitat Pagadim, the Rav at his absolute best You've heard this year from a thousand different people. They all got it from the rough. Everyone robs this, it's all from the rough. In my words and Ashkafrid's end notes tomorrow, a tape from a source outside the YU world, word by word, robbed from Aaron Rekhefet. You won't believe your ears. Yesach Ephraim and Aaron Rekhefet, word by word, saying the same thing. I begin with that, and then I bring proof after proof to many of the things I've said this past term that dummy Aaron Rakefet, Bronx boy low life Joe DiMaggio fan right on 100% Josh that's tomorrow anyone who comes tomorrow in addition to the 10,000 for Pshitat Bagadim I'm giving out a Kamir I repeat, I'm giving out a Kamiya for 10,000 shekel apiece. To, that's ten, that, the shear is $10,000. The Kamiya is 10,000 shekel. Jack, you better bring all your books tomorrow. The dollar book, the shekel book. Gentlemen, uh, excuse me? No, no, no. And that, God forbid. No, no, I never tell him. A, stu- a, a Talmud called me from Shalavim last night. And he asked me who to vote for. So I told him, don't vote Aguda Yisrael, but vote for any other party you want. And I told him, if Aguda will take ministerial responsibility, then you can vote for them too, if you wish. God forbid. You know, I'm like, I, I, what am I, like my Rebbe. Would my Rebbe ever tell you who to vote for? He said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll tell you what I'm doing. You do what you want. So I'll tell you what I'm doing when I decide. I haven't decided yet. But uh, I'll show you tomorrow with Rav Parish how right I was. You can't believe it. 
uh, gentlemen, Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock, two earth-shaking events are happening. Number one, Ira Kefford is giving a talk at the NCSY in which he is letting out such steam, going so crazy. So that's number one. Number two, at 10 a.m. Wednesday morning, there'll be no one to hear Ira Kefford because at 10 a.m. on the radio, I don't think the TV, just the radio, am I right, Jack? Just the radio. They are broadcasting for the first time in Israeli history the results of the Derry trial. Gentlemen, after the results are announced and Derry is guilty, we Jews will not be allowed to walk the streets. I have the Kamiya that you put on your shirt or on your jacket that will spare you from any pogrom. Guaranteed, it makes you a hero, makes you one of the boys. And guaranteed, it's 10,000 shekel and being benevolent, sharing it with you, it's for the guys that come to Shia tomorrow. Finally, last but not least, my husband for the late lamented Joe DiMaggio, Yosef Pinchas, Ben Miriam. Ehud, I wouldn't be laughing because that husband is so serious. That husband will be given Chodesh Iyar. I don't want to give it a Chodesh Nisan and I don't want to give it when you're not here. But Chodesh Iyar, the first Tuesday we can work, first Monday we can work it out at 10.30. I will give the husband I am an old man. My youth is over with the demise of the man. And although I had Four Rabbanim in my house last night, and very Hashiv Rabbanim on Shabbos. I had set up next to the Shabbos candles the baseball with Jody's autograph and the two massive volumes on Jody's life that I possess, all gifts from my dear students. And it was like a shrine. And I tell you, Rabbi Shachter wanted a light a candle. If it wouldn't be Shabbos, he would have lit a candle. At night, my problem was I had one guy there whose youth still is with him. My dear friend Rabbi Yitzchak Rubin, raised in Boston, that no good Nick Ted Williams is still alive. He's still a young man, although he's my age. And I'm an old man. Joe D is gone. Hirsch Cooper, to explain that to you, was made Ted Williams versus Joe DiMaggio, what, what, what the Boston and New York were like. It's books. I have two in time.